Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. Jill's away this week. We already miss her, but we look forward to welcoming her back next week. Today, we'll be discussing the end of uh, the Durham investigations and prosecutorial discretion, the latest updates on investigations involving former President Donald Trump, and lawsuits challenging President Biden's forgiveness of student loans. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Um, I have a question for each of you. My question is this. Where's the beef? <laughs> you, you may have seen that uh, Judge Raymond Deary, bless, bless his heart, Joyce. Um, bless his special heart. Ma- he's the special master in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And he, he pushed back against Trump's lawyers during a hearing asking for more um, uh, substantial uh, foundation and basis for his claims of privilege by asking, where's the beef? And I haven't heard that one since I listened to music on my Walkman cassette player, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, wondering what uh, what your favorite catchphrases from the 1980s are. You guys well, have you, any? Know, you, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was sort of the quintessential Valley girl, for sure. Um, and, and so I think that's got to be it. For me, it was, you know, for sure, gnarly, awesome, all of the great California surfer culture phrases <laughs> that occasionally I try so hard not to use them, but occasionally they slip in and my kids look at me and, and just are so embarrassed. Um, but it's hard to lose them. They're great words. How about you, Cam? You have any good catchphrases? Yeah. I do. So when I think of the 80s specifically and, and phrases that I may still use today, um, being from Detroit, Barb, you may have heard this back in the day when we greeted someone, uh, we would say, what up, though? You know, and so I, over time that sort of faded out and I left Michigan long ago. But every now and again, I would hear that and it like brings me right back <laughs> to home. But I guess the one phrase that I use now that's probably, I believe it's from the 80s. I don't know if it's regional or not like that, but I use it every uh, every now and again. And I said it in front of my husband and, uh, a while back and he was like, what is that? And it's skosh, just a skosh. Like, you know, if you're ordering a sandwich and they ask you, how mu- do you want mustard on it? And you say, just a skosh. And I actually think it might be Valley Girl speak, but I don't know why. I certainly said it growing up in Michigan. So maybe it's a little broader than that. Have you ever heard that? Joy? I've never heard it. Just no, a just a I, I, I grew up in Michigan and I haven't heard it. I like just it skosh. though. Just it, it, but it, but you understand yeah. exactly what I mean. Immediately, right? just in context, yeah. <laughs> I immediately know what that means. <laughs> I'm gonna start using it. Just a skosh. Yeah. What if it means a lot and you say just a skosh and they really load you up? But Kim says it means just a, just a smidge. Yeah, just just a, yeah, just a little bit. It feels like bit. schmear to me. You know, I love the word schmear like when you get your locks with bagel and cream cheese yeah, on it. Yeah, but you I get like just schmear, schmear too, but that's a lot. When I lived in New York and you asked for a schmear, you get a ton of You do of get a lot cheese. of schmear, but it's so like I think that. So yeah. I think it's the opposite. Gosh, okay. <laughs> just a skosh, yeah. Skosh. Well, I don't have any good slang like that, but when I heard where's the beef, it made me think of you know, those like television ad things from the 80s, like I've fallen and I can't get up. It seems like (laughs) there must be some use, some application of that phrase for all that's happening in our country right right now. If anybody's got a good, uh, uh, it's it's like the punchline of a joke. I just don't know what the joke is. Um, But when I think of the 80s, like the ultimate catchphrase for me of the 80s, in the 1980s, I was in high school and we first got cable TV. So to me, the catchphrase was, I want my MTV. That yes. was such the rage to watch those That's music videos. Right. 
Yes, it really was. I remember when we first got cable, I was in elementary school Child. and I would get up an hour earlier before I had to, to watch videos. Like go yeah. to watch mm-hmm. like, you know, Duran Duran and Pat Benatar. Oh, they're the greatest. School. Duran Duran. <laughs> so good. So you've probably heard people talking about the Durham investigation this week in particular because there have been some losses in court. It's worth our time, I think, to dig in a little bit deeper. We all know that DOJ can only do its job if the public has confidence that the system is working with integrity. And that's part of what's at issue here because Durham has now lost two trials and it's fair to ask whether he conducted himself the way federal prosecutors are supposed to and what the consequences of this investigation are. So, Kim, let's start by thinking about what the remit of Durham's investigation as special counsel was. What was he tagged with doing? Yeah, so Durham, um, as we've talked about before, he's a former U.S. attorney for Connecticut. And at the time, this was uh, in at, toward the end of the Trump administration, um, or in the middle of it, Donald Trump was making all kinds of claims about wrongdoing and the deep state and how the DOJ was after him. And that was the whole reason why the investigation into Russia, the one that would be ultimately run by special counsel Robert Mueller, was started. And so Bill Barr tagged Durham to be a special counsel to investigate the investigators, so to speak, to see uh, if the investigation into whether there were connections between Trump's Trump's campaign and Russia uh, committed any sort of wrongdoing at all. And so this probe, the, the, the wild thing about this probe is it was broad. It was really global. Durham really had free reign almost to investigate anything connected to it. So if you recall, for example, he that included investigating allegations that um, General Michael Flynn was improperly unmasked. You know, this feels like this was a long time ago, but that was all part of it. And I think that Durham had a little bit of pressure on him because recall that Attorney General Bill Barr testified before Congress that he thought there was some there there, that he thought that, quote, some spying um, had gone on. So this is how he began this investigation with these with these uh, claims by the president and even the sworn statement by the attorney general at the time that he believed that bad things had happened leading up to this investigation. I remember how strange it was when Barr engaged in, in that testimony, almost as though he was suggesting before DOJ had made any decisions about indicting anyone, um, that there were really serious problems that were being uncovered. And that struck me at the time as being very unusual. Also, the way that Durham was appointed was unusual, Barb, because, you know, we're so familiar with the use of the term special counsel in the context of Bob Mueller, who came in as special counsel. He was appointed by Rod Rosenstein. He was not a Justice Department employee. But Durham was the sitting U.S. attorney in Connecticut when he was appointed. It feels really different. Um, Am I wrong to think that there was something different there in the sense that it made everything look political and it just wasn't as above board as having someone who was truly independent as a special counsel coming into government? Yeah, I I think you're right. Um, You know, 
when Robert Mueller was appointed the special counsel, he was somebody who was out in private practice. He was widely revered as a straight shooter, as a career investigator, having been the director of the FBI and a U.S. attorney, um, and mostly associated with Republican administrations. So I think for that reason, he was seen as a, an independent choice who would have a lot of credibility in law enforcement circles and with Republican voters. Um, and he was not aligned with you know any party at that time. He was independent, and, and that was why he was selected. John Durham was the Trump appointee in, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Connecticut. He ran that office, and then he got... Uh, sort of switched over, appointed to be the special counsel. And then even after all the other U.S. attorneys moved on and were replaced by the Biden administration, Durham stayed on and continued this investigation. And so there is one technical difference here in addition to this appearance of politics, and that is um, it it is not um, possible to fire him in the same way that um, uh, the... um, special counsel appointed in the method that Robert Mueller was um, in terms of uh, for um, for cause, the ability to terminate him. And so um, there were some ways that um, Attorney General Merrick Garland could have ended it. He could have kind of rescinded the authority and closed down the investigation. Um, but that's uh, also politically fraught, I think, if he had done that. It would have given the appearance of a political motive by President Biden's attorney general. So it made for, um, you know, some um, made it kind of thorny to get rid of him. And perhaps that was William Barr's goal is to put him in place in a way that would make it difficult, if not impossible, to remove him. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point, that notion about the difference in in firing and even in supervision has a little bit more feel. I mean, to be fair, right, we would have all been up in arms if Bob Mueller had been tightly supervised by the deputy attorney general. So maybe it's fair to let John Durham go ahead and, and conduct his own business. But Kim Durham tried two cases this year. He lost both of them. Uh, and so I've, I've got two questions. First, qualitatively about those cases. Were they the caliber of cases that you'd expect to see coming out of a special counsel investigation? And what do you make of the losses? Federal prosecutors don't lose a lot of cases. Yeah, they don't. And, you know, going into this, I have to be honest. I tried to give myself the same advice that I give other people at the beginning of an investigation and let it play out and not really have any predetermination of what I think that it's about. I know this had been sort of derided by a lot of people. It's just politically motivated. But look, this is a person who was a former U.S. attorney. And just like the investigation into, say, Hunter Biden, I said, let's wait to see if there's any there there. I'm not going to automatically say, uh, say, no, no, this is just um, political. And so I did that. But as you said, the result are two acquittals. So this week it was the acquittal in the case of Igor Dushenko, who is a researcher who was charged with lying to the FBI about sources of information um, for that infamous dossier, which has been mostly discredited. We From the start, it was reported as not being substantiated, uh, but that was one uh, acquittal. Um, The other acquittal, of course, was Michael Sussman, who was also acquitted of lying to the FBI. And don't forget, there was also uh, a plea um, by another person 
uh, who pled out, but who was char- who was sentenced only with probation time, I believe. And I think wasn't um, that handled by the Inspector General's office as opposed to Durham? I might be wrong oh, about that. I think Durham handled the prosecution, but the Inspector General's th- office made the whole case. They did the yeah. whole investigation that resulted. Right. They just handed right. it over to Durham. So it was a bit of a hybrid, but but at the end of the day, you know, people are not going to jail. This does not seem to be a lot. And so I think that's important. I think that the fact that everybody had their day in court, the fact that he was given very broad authority to investigate and nothing came of this, I think at the very least will tell the American people, all right, was there there there? There was a thorough investigation. It was done under people uh, appointed by Trump or appointed by someone who was appointed by Trump. And there was no there there. So I think overall that is a manner in which justice was served. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a fair criticism. I saw somebody on Twitter sort of in a very snarky tone telling Pete Strzok that he could unpack uh, his Gitmo go bag, right? This is the former FBI um, high-ranking official who had been heavily criticized by Trump and was certainly one of Durham's uh, at least apparent targets at the origin of of that. And and this investigation never really approached that level. There was nothing going on here that seemed to indict the people who in 2016, um, inside of the FBI, were trying to figure out whether Russia was engaged in trying to interfere with our election. And although I've seen a lot of uh, Republicans, I saw Senator John Cornyn from Texas on on Twitter, suggesting that even though there were acquittals, it was still clear that that Russia investigation had been, you know, sort of a a misguided operation. Really nothing like that emerges from John Durham's investigation. Um, Which leads me to a point that you had raised, Barb. You know, when, when you and I teach our law students, one of the things we talk about a lot when we're talking about criminal law is the wise exercise of prosecutorial discretion. The fact that prosecutors shouldn't indict cases um, willy-nilly and you have to think about both can you, do you have the proof that you need and also should you, is it the right case for DOJ to turn into a a federal crime? so we talk with our students about that a lot, and I think that applies somewhat here. Can, can you explain what we mean in more detail? Yes, and I'm so glad to be talking about this. We had a listener ask us to explain prosecutorial discretion, so I'm really glad to have an opportunity to talk about that. Um, I think you hit on the key language, Joyce. Prosecutors must decide not only can they bring a charge, that is, is there sufficient evidence, but should they bring a charge? So those are two separate questions. And the principles of federal prosecution, which is the policy manual for Justice Department lawyers, assistant U.S. attorneys and trial lawyers at the Justice Department, um, it goes through first the can you charge, which is, is the evidence sufficient to make it probable that you can obtain and sustain a conviction? That means getting a jury to convict and having it upheld on appeal because the law is sound um, and that you have admissible evidence to do that. So that's the first question. And then you're not done. And I think sometimes people think, well, a crime was committed. There it is. You have to be charged. There's the should you charge prong. And the Justice Department uh, Justice Manual has a number of factors to consider there. One of them is whether there's a substantial federal interest in uh, advancing the, the prosecution. One is whether there are adequate alternative remedies. If you can disbar somebody or sue them civilly, you should do that instead of 
going through the very serious process of criminal charges. Or if there's some other jurisdiction that wants the case, you should uh, consider deferring to them. If, if a state wants to handle it, ordinarily they are given deference to handle that case. So those are some of the factors. And one factor you must never consider, according to the principles of federal prosecution, is politics. Um, political association, affiliation, position, any of those kinds of things can never come into the calculus that a prosecutor does. And, um, you know, you asked whether um, John Durham behaved consistently with that. And I, I look at two things. One is, you know, Donald Trump really poisoned this prosecution from the get-go by saying that John Durham was going to expose the crime of the century because that makes it kind of politically loaded already, you know, expectations. And if I were John Durham, I would hate it that the president was saying those things because I want to just, you know, look at the facts and the law and make my decision like that. And I think it, it creates this expectation that it's all political. But John Durham did not disappoint because <laughs> uh, those who appointed it, because his his indictments were, you know, 27 pages about Hillary Clinton and then one sentence about the defendant in the case. Uh, you know, they they hired a law firm and they did this and they did that. And, you know, things that were largely known in the public. But I think this was an opportunity to shine a spotlight on the role of, you know, it was first a Republican rival and then it was the Clinton campaign who hired the firm that hired uh, the, the guy who wrote the Steele dossier. And so it was really, I think, about trying to expose that and turn the tables and make it look like the whole Russia investigation was just a Hillary Clinton plot. I think it failed miserably because, as the inspector general determined, the case was properly predicated before the Steele dossier. That means it was opened even before they got that information. Um, and the two indictments where he lost at trial were not about FBI overreach whatsoever. They were about FBI victimization. He charged people with lying to the FBI, Sussman and Danchenko, and then ultimately found, you know, jury found them not guilty anyway. So, you know, began with a bang, ended with a whimper, and I think improperly at least had the appearance of a political motivation. Yeah, you know, I always remember in September of 2020, as this investigation sort of looked like something might be happening, um, Nora Danahy, who is a career prosecutor in Connecticut, someone we'd, we had worked with, um, went back to that office to work with her longtime friend, John Durham, on this investigation. And in September of 2020, she quits. She just leaves. There's no explanation. It's obvious something is very deeply broken for her to walk out like that. And in every way, as you say, Barb, this um, investigation lived up to expectation. Um, Kim, you look at DOJ from the broader perspective of a reporter who is also a lawyer. Do you think that the institution is harmed in any way by Durham's work? Or, and, you know, what do you expect the legacy or the fallout from this investigation will look like? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that it is because of the result. If he had tried to prosecute bigger cases and bigger crimes and they were acquitted, it would have really looked political, right? The 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 highest fruit that he could reach for is lying to the FBI in these cases, more or less. And uh, one pled out, two ended in acquittals. I think for the most part, this will be a forgotten chapter. So I think thankfully for the good people who work at the DOJ that this would not be a long-lasting black eye. But I think it's also a lesson to folks when they say, oh, we're going to try to use the political, you know, the levers of the DOJ for political ends it doesn't really work out because as you both know, you really have to have the goods to bring cases to court and, and get them convicted. You can't, it's not so easy to turn the DOJ into a political arm and maybe that's the lesson. I hope so. 
Well, this week saw some new developments in the investigations involving former President Donald Trump. On Friday, the January 6th committee made it official doing what they promised to do and issued a subpoena against former President Donald Trump asking him to appear to testify and produce documents. And it's a doozy. It's about a 10-page subpoena. Kim, what uh, what's the gist of what's in there? Yeah, it's pretty juicy. Here is a highlight straight from the language of the subpoena itself. It says, as demonstrated in our hearings, we have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff, that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power. And it bullet points all kinds of things from disseminating uh, false information to over orchestrating an effort to, to obtain and transmit false electoral certificates uh, to refusing to, to uh, you know, inciting a riot at the Capitol and refusing to tell them to stand down. So it's pretty wide-ranging and sweeping. One thing that seems to me is that the language um, is written as if they are uh, basically accusing him of crimes, which I think is meant to signal the DOJ as well. Uh, it's quite something. Yeah, it, it really is. It's uh, It's lengthy and it's got some pretty powerful language in it. Joyce, why do you think they choose to do this? I mean, they could just issue a subpoena with his name on it and a date, right? Why why include all that language? You know, we talk so much about speaking indictments. Well, this is a speaking subpoena. This is a subpoena that's designed to make history. Um, look, I think everybody knows that it's extremely unlikely Trump is going to end up testifying. And so what this really amounts to is, is some posturing. And the committee wants to be in a position to say when all is said and done that they gave Trump every opportunity to come in and tell his side of the story, but he refused to do so. They want to cut off his opportunity to say down the road that his conduct was mischaracterized and that he was treated unfairly and they never let him tell his side of the story. So now the committee has said what they think it is. They've laid it all out and Trump can either come in and deny it or let it stand. But I'm not holding my breath to see testimony under oath from the former president. Yeah. And of course, with the midterm elections looming, um, we'll have a new Congress in January. It may or may not have a Democratic majority. But um, either way, this subpoena, I think, would expire unless they uh, re reissue it. So uh, we'll, we'll see whether there's anything that comes of it. But uh, it, it's a good read, if nothing else. Um, well, let me ask you about something else in this January 6th probe. Um, and this relates to the production of email messages from John Eastman, who was subpoenaed by the committee. Um, and this week, a California judge ordered John Eastman to produce some additional email messages under what's known as the crime fraud exception. Um, and Kim, let me ask you, first of all, why, why on earth is this case in California when the committee sits <laughs> in Washington, D.C.? And what is the crime fraud exception? Well, uh, so the first question, why is it in California? It is because uh, Eastman, if you recall, was a professor at Chapman University, and he was actually sending some of the emails in question from his university email uh, account, which is how they were discovered. So I believe that that is why uh, this is happening in California, because the school is based there. But the crime and fraud exception basically says, look, you cannot claim privilege based on the attorney-client privilege or any other uh, privilege. When you are 
engaging in or helping someone engage in a crime. That is um, an important element here. So that's basically at the crux of this case is whether these emails that he was sending with Donald Trump uh, were part of an attempt to obstruct the certification of the election results. And the judge seems to believe that it was. Well, Joyce, can you talk a little more about the crime fraud exception and how it applies in this case? I mean, I've seen some headlines that say judge finds Trump committed crime like that. You know, that's the end of it. Uh, Case closed. (laughs) Um, Is it as simple as that? It's not as simple as that. This is really about evidence and admissibility of evidence. This isn't a decision um, by Judge Carter that the former president committed crimes and should be prosecuted or incarcerated. What he's being asked to do is decide whether he should pierce the attorney-client privilege. You know, in our legal system, there's this, this huge presumption that the whole reason we have the system is to find the truth, to get at the truth. And the attorney-client privilege really flies in the face of that. The attorney-client privilege is one of those rare instances where we say, hold on a minute, yes, there's truths here, and and yes, they might be relevant to your case, but we're, in the normal case, not going to let you find out what goes on between an attorney and their client because we want to preserve this sort of um, very safe space for the client to get good advice from the attorney without fear that their conversations will be disclosed. And so that's the normal course of business. And as Kim says, the uh, crime fraud exception means that if you've got a setting where the client is seeking legal advice and uses it in furtherance of the commission of a crime, Then we say, okay, that's enough of the attorney-client privilege. We'll go ahead and pierce it and let folks get at the truth. And so that's what Judge Carter does here. He says, most of these emails, they're covered one way or the other, but there are eight of them at the end, and it's clear that Trump is in this relationship in, in furtherance of a crime, and we're going to release those to the January 6th committee. So it's about whether the committee can look at evidence that would otherwise be concealed And of course, once it goes to the committee, it's fair game for other prosecutors and will very likely um, be accessed by both DOJ and the Georgia, the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, and will be available for them to use as evidence as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, some evidence of intent, I think, you know, to um, use false numbers in making claims about fraud in Georgia. So, you know, it's not a whole case, but it's, you know, one piece of a case. So it could be some significant evidence. Yeah, yeah. Um, On Friday, we also saw the sentencing of Steve Bannon, the former White House advisor. He was sentenced uh, after his conviction for contempt of Congress for refusing to testify in response to a congressional subpoena like this one to Donald Trump. His sentence uh, after his conviction was four months in prison and a $6,500 fine. What do you think of that sentence, Kim? I mean, I think that it's important to show, look, this, there are actual consequences to just refusing a subpoena lawfully issued by a congressional committee. We didn't think that they'd throw the book at him on this. Um, this is not uh, the most serious crime that even Bannon has faced in this. But especially now that Donald Trump has faced a subpoena, it it sends a clear message that just ignoring it comes with consequences. And I think that that's an important one. Yeah, I, you know, good to see him get some sentence. Um, what do you think, Joyce? Was that uh, was that sufficient? 
Um, you know, no. Four months is not a sufficient <laughs> sentence for Steve Sufficient, Bannon. but no more than necessary, right? Um, That's what a sentence is supposed and, to and be. And it's certainly not as much as is necessary. And I think that we're going to find that out, to be honest. I mean, we're going to see ongoing misconduct from Steve Bannon, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to imagine that suddenly he would see the light and, uh, and change his mind. One yeah. of the things that came up, Joyce, at the sentencing, I want to ask you about this as our self-proclaimed appellate nerd. The judge, I think, indicated a willingness. I don't know if he decided for sure, but I think he indicated at least a willingness to allow Bannon to remain free while his appeal is pending. Now, that's not the way it usually works, is it? Why would Bannon get that treatment? That's not the way it works, and that's what the judge did. Bannon gets an appellate bond. He can stay out while the appeal uh, is progressing through the courts, and that could be some period of time. Look, this was a bad decision by the judge. Um, I, I think it's pretty cut and dry. After sentencing, the criminal statutes that that cover whether or not a defendant should remain on bond are very clear, and they say that the judge shall send the defendant to prison unless there's clear and convincing evidence that the defendant is not a flight risk or a danger to the community, and also there has to be clear and convincing evidence that the defendant has a substantial issue on appeal. And what that boils down to is there, there's some argument the defendant's going to make that's really significant, that's likely to lead to reversal or some sort of radical um, transformation of the sentence. And Bannon doesn't have one of those substantial arguments. This is his argument. He says he wanted to use an advice of counsel defense at trial. That defense would have said, I relied on what my lawyer said, and my lawyer said I didn't have to show up to comply with the subpoena, so I didn't. And even this judge, Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee, didn't let Bannon use that at trial. The reason he didn't, the law says that you can't. It's pretty cut and dry. And so for Bannon to now argue on appeal that he has a substantial chance, that it's a substantial issue, is really misplaced. This is a Hail Mary. This is nothing more than that. Does he win? Maybe he will win, but it's not something that he's very likely to win on. And so I think the judge made the wrong decision here. Yeah, Carl Nichols, I think, is also the only judge on the D.C. bench at the trial level who ruled that um, it was improper to charge some of the January 6th defendants with obstruction of an official proceeding for what they did when they disrupted the, the vote that it had to be based on documents, which seemed a little kooky at the time. So, yeah, yeah, we'll have, we'll have to see how that one shakes out. Okay. All right, so finally, I do want to get back to our original question, where is the beef? Because that was the question that the special master, Raymond Deary, asked of the Trump lawyers um, in the Mar-a-Lago case. Kim, what, what was he talking about when he said, where's the beef? Yeah. Oh, Deary. Special Master Deary is not happy. So essentially, he was uh, remarking about the lack of evidence that was put forward by Trump and his team uh, to back up the alleged claims of privilege that he's asserting, or he's asserting that either these documents are covered by uh, a privilege, executive privilege or attorney-client privilege, or that they are personal documents um, that he did not need to turn over. And so Special Master Deering said, uh, I don't want to be dealing with nonsense objections, nonsense assessments, especially when I have one month to deal with who knows how many uh, assertions 
patience. So he's basically saying, look, time's running out. I don't have a lot of time to work through this. You are not backing up your claims, and we need something. We need something substantial. He gave uh, Trump's team until November 12th to uh, put forward more clear um, t- to back up with the claims that they're making about privilege in this case. Yeah, it'll be interesting if they can actually say anything. It's just, it's privilege. What do you mean it's privilege? <laughs> privilege because it's privileged. What does that, what does that mean exactly? It doesn't work yeah, that way. Yeah, we, we need some argument. Some meat on those bones. Um, Joyce, uh, I want to ask you, meanwhile, we've got this thing cooking over in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which operates in your neck of the woods, covering Alabama and Florida and other places in the Southeast. You're our expert down there in the 11th Circuit. What's your sense of the strength of DOJ's appeal on the big picture, their appeal of Judge Cannon's order appointing the special master in the first place? Yeah, you know, DOJ's appeal is a solid one. And and I will confess, Barb, I'm often very equivocal on the chances of appeals. You know, there are good arguments on both sides, almost always, if a case is being appealed. I think a little bit less so here. Um, You know, first off, there's this jurisdictional issue. Judge Cannon exercised what's called equitable jurisdiction, and that's a very unusual thing for a judge to do, but she decided that Trump met the test for it. That was very interesting because his lawyers actually failed to cite the correct test, um, Ritchie versus Smith, which is this four-factor test that judges use to decide whether they should exercise equitable jurisdiction. But no problem. They didn't raise it. She was happy to argue it for them um, and to find in their favor. A- and the reality is that it's a bad decision. She um, she more or less conceded on the first factor that DOJ had not acted in a way that was disrespectful or repressive of Trump's rights. And that should be ball game. But she found that he would suffer damage and some of these other arguments that we've seen play out in other ways, despite the fact that he has no possessory interest in these documents. Um, and the argument is really a poor one. And it's very likely that the 11th Circuit will reject it. And they frankly could just say, no jurisdiction, game over, this case is due to be dismissed, and leave it at that. But it's it's likely that they'll go a little bit further and look at the other issues and create a record, because this case, I think, is headed to the Supreme Court. But unfortunately for Trump, his case does not get any better when you move on from the jurisdiction issue. And Judge Cannon's decision to use a special matter in this setting as opposed to a setting where you're searching an attorney's office, um, it really restricts DOJ's ability to use material that it obtained during a lawful search in a very unprecedented way. So I think that um, her decision is unlikely to carry a lot of weight with the 11th Circuit. Here's the problem. If you do this for Trump, if you permit equitable jurisdiction to be used to interfere with a criminal case, then you have to do it for everybody, every drug trafficker, you know, human trafficker, bank robber who comes in front of you. And the 11th Circuit is not a circuit that's going to interfere with, with DOJ. So I think Judge Cannon was willing to do this in service of Trump. I don't think the 11th Circuit's going to be on board. Hey, Joyce. 
Federal courts turned away two separate challenges to President Biden's student debt relief executive order. So, Barb, these cases allow me to indulge in the civil procedure nerd in me because in both of these cases, the decision wasn't made on the merits of these challenges, but on procedural grounds, specifically standing. Tell us about that. Standing. Stand up when you speak. I am standing. You know, that's what we (laughs) vertically challenged uh, like to say. Um, Standing is one of those basic requirements for lawsuits. Before you may actually bring a lawsuit, you have to have standing. That is, you suffer some harm um, so that you have some real skin in the game before you can bring a lawsuit. You know, the idea is we don't want, um, you know, people getting sort of theoretical uh, rulings. There has to be a real case or controversy. It has to be, you know, ready to go and you have to have standing. So um, uh, it's, you know, in these cases, uh, the court ruled that um, the the parties lack standing because they couldn't show that they'd been harmed in any way. So there was a, a lawsuit in federal district court in St. Louis that was brought by uh, six states, and the states, you know, said that um, they were challenging this loan forgiveness program, that it was illegal, that it violated uh, the law that authorizes it, that it has to be in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. And the court said, you know, maybe somebody's got a claim here, but not you. Uh, You six states, you have not shown that you've suffered any harm. And so this is just a theoretical um, beef that you have. So uh, you, it's not going to stand. Similarly, um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett dismissed another challenge that came out of a taxpayers association in Wisconsin. And likewise, in the lower court, the district court judge there had dismissed the case on the same grounds of standing that there had been no showing of any sort of harm. And so Justice uh, Barrett didn't explain why she was denying relief, but she did so without making any statement whatsoever or referring it to the whole court. And so everybody assumed it was kind of for the same reason that she just rejected it kind of out of hand. And and so I, I get, Joyce, why uh, judges said, okay, well, state officials, nothing has happened to you. They claim that they could uh, theoretically suffer some harm in the future, but they haven't yet. Um, even taxpayers, there are a lot of things. That's probably the worst claim of standing courts routinely dismiss people saying, well, no, I'm a taxpayer, so I'm paying for this. It's like if every taxpayer could bring a case against a a government action that they don't like, that the courts would be full with just those complaints. So that's, we know that's it. But do you think that there might be a plaintiff who could have standing to challenge this order to get the case to the merits? I mean, I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe someone who had student loans and qualified, but they were being serviced by private banks, which the administration exempted um, from this order. Maybe someone like that who says they're being claimed, they're being treated unfairly. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about who the perfect plaintiff withstanding would be in this situation. You sort of need a very specific individual. And beyond merely having standing, they have to be willing to bring the lawsuit. Presumably, a lot of people, you know, won't be willing, but maybe there are some folks with sour grapes out there who would engage in it. So I think, Kim, there are two possible sort of prototype plaintiffs who might have standing. 
Um, and it's along the lines that you suggest. Maybe somebody whose loans, or, or rather somebody who has loans, but their income exceeds the $125,250,000 maximum. So their injury is the loss of the $10,000 in debt cancellation that other folks are getting. And the ideal litigant here, somebody who would be able to prove that they were really damaged the way that Barb sets out the standing requirements, it would be someone who's just barely earning over the income maximum, but they live in a really high-cost city, you know, somebody in Manhattan or somebody in San Francisco. That sort of a person might be willing to sneak by on standing claims. Maybe the better case is somebody who has a commercially held federal family education loan program loan, the um, FFELP that so many people have. And then the, if the Secretary of Education, and this is all still up in the air, right, because we don't know how this plays out, but let's say that the Secretary of Education determines later on that the FFELP loans don't qualify for forgiveness. Well, in that case, they might be able to sue, arguing why should they be denied forgiveness if they meet the income requirement. That seems to me to be the more likely place where you will find someone who would want to sue and would also be able to argue standing. But I'm super glad that we have you, our civil procedure nerd, on board on the podcast because this stuff is, <laughs> it, it is, you know, really the arcana um, of the, um, you know, legal world. And Figuring this stuff out is difficult, and it'll be up to some really, I think, good lawyers in the sense of well-rounded practitioners to try to find plaintiffs if they really want to um, challenge what President Biden has done here. And I think that's right. And, you know, I was talking to some folks both in the legal and political worlds right after uh, Biden signed this executive order, and they seemed to think, oh, no, this is, you know, this is going to get tossed out. Like, there's no way this sees the light of day. This is going to get tossed out like some of the other uh, executive orders that he tried. And, it, and you see it's not that easy. Um, the court system has rules that you have to follow, and it isn't as easy as I think some folks thought. But anyway, let's pretend that there is a plaintiff that has standing. We're going to move past the procedural nerd, nerdiness and get right to the heart of this case, as Barb set out. So President Biden did this under the authority of something called the HEROES Act of 2003, which allows um, the executive to change student loan terms as it sees fit, uh, necessary, quote, in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. And in this case, we're coming out of a pandemic. He, he paused, well, first of all, Donald Trump paused student loans. Uh, Donald Trump's administration, the Department of Education, paused student loans first. Biden continued that and extended that by saying we're going to forgive some loans too uh, as we recover from a pandemic. So how do you think that might play off? Do you think that someone, if they do have standing, could successfully challenge that Biden went beyond his authority here? I'd say two things to that, Kim. Um, yeah. One is we have seen um, in the court's recent history, the Supreme Court's recent history, this real pushback against the administrative state that, you know, they, they dice, dissect these words um, and they, you know, like they've, they've pushed back against the EPA and OSHA and others when they want to regulate things and say, you uh, exceeded your authorization from Congress. You're only allowed to do, you know, this, this little, what was your word, smidge? Mm-hmm. A skosh. You're only allowed to do a skosh, <laughs> administrative agency. And since you did more than a skosh, 
we're going to say you overreached and only Congress, Congress, the legislature gets to make the laws and you can only act when they specifically delegate to you some specific power. And uh, if, the, if the term is too, you know, too vague, then you will have overreached. But what's different here that gives me some pause is it's not an agency, it's the president himself. And the same justices who've been so hostile to the administrative state when it comes to agencies also love the unitary executive, you know, this very strong executive uh, presidential power. So the fact that it's the president making these decisions, I don't know. I don't know whether that makes makes a difference versus uh, a federal agency. You know, Barb has such a reasoned, um, academic, soundly intellectual analysis of this case. I'm going to go completely the other direction and say that if Amy Comey Barrett didn't want to become the villain who was going to take away this relief from financially desperate students, I don't think anybody else is going to want to do it either. I mean, this may be one of these cases where there's just so much financial pressure on so many students these days. Who wants to be really the judge who says no to them, you know, that you can't have that relief? I I don't usually think judges engage in that kind of reasoning, to be honest. I think it's very rare. But but somebody who takes away this program, they are going to be a villain. And, you know, maybe we'll, with some good fortune here, there won't be any judges that want to do that. Well, now we come to the part of the show that really is our favorite, answering questions from our listeners. The questions we get are fantastic, and sometimes it's difficult to choose among them. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. First, we've got a question from Chris who asks, What's going on in the E. Jean Carroll case? Any updates? Joyce, you follow that one pretty closely. What's what's going on? Well, I do. And full disclosure, E. Jean is a buddy. She's a knitting buddy um, and someone that I have known for years and, and like a whole lot. So this week, her lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, was able to take the former president, Donald Trump's deposition in that case, which as our listeners, I'm sure, recall is a defamation case. The argument is that when E. Jean Carroll accused Trump of raping her in a dressing store or in a department store dressing room um, decades ago, Trump denied it and, and had really unflattering things to say about her. He uh, said that she wasn't his type, among other things. So she sues. Um, and this case has been dragging on. Trump has done everything that he can do to delay it. But finally, the, the judge, Lewis Kaplan, said, no more delay. I've had enough. This case is scheduled for trial in February. And this deposition is the last thing, really, that has to happen before we're ready to go to trial. So the deposition takes place. We unfortunately don't know any details about what happened because it's been designated confidential and sealed. But we might find out pretty quickly because this case is scheduled to go to trial in February and the judge seems eager to get it there. There is one lingering legal issue that has to be decided before the case can go to trial. And here's what happened. Trump took an appeal to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and he said, wait a second, I've got qualified immunity. She can't sue me for this. I'm a federal employer. At least I was when I made these um, comments. And the Second Circuit has handled that with exceeding slowness. But we finally learned what they were going to do. 
they and this is a it's a really important it's an outcome determinative sort of issue but they said okay we'll spot you the fact that you were a federal employee when you made these comments but there's this other issue we're not so sure about were you acting within the scope of your employment when you allegedly defamed Ms. Carroll and the second circuit said we want to let the DC courts decide that issue because this is their law that's being used so it should be up to them That issue is off being decided in D.C., and here's the way that's going to play out. If that court rules, yes, that Trump was acting within the scope of his employment as a federal employee, then this qualified immunity argument will apply, and the the government, the Justice Department, will step into Trump's shoes, and the case against him will be dismissed. But if they decide he wasn't acting within the scope of his employment, then the whole shebang goes to trial, and that could get interesting very quickly. You know, Barb, there's there's one last thing. I'm sorry, but just to go back and say, I saw that you flagged this this week, and I thought it was a great catch on your part. You know, this whole argument is about what Trump said when he was president, when he maybe had special protection. But this week, he went back on his social media thing and he restated all of the defamation of E. Jean Carroll that he had made earlier. And you had raised the fact that maybe his that maybe um, Carroll's lawyer would go back and amend the complaint and call this a fresh libel, which I think is a good point. And, and there's something else, right? I think this may be informative about whether or not he made those comments in the scope of his employment as, as president. Because if they were important when he was president, well, why does he need to go back and reiterate them now? He's done with that job. It would seem to be irrelevant. So I think that this is additional evidence that he was not acting within the scope of his employment when he defamed her. He was acting in his personal capacity. Yeah, I think he might have really blown it with this new comment. I think even if he loses or even if the government loses, E. Jean Carroll loses, um, on the scope of the employment issue, I think he just freshened it up, right, with the with the new. It claim. looks that way. <laughs> yeah, we'll wait and see. Um, our next question comes to us from DB, who says, "I've always learned that ignorance of the law is not a defense." You are right, DB. So why is mens rea, which I understand to be intention or knowledge of wrongdoing, so important in whether or not ex-President Trump is guilty of any crime? So DB, what um, you're absolutely right about ignorance of the law being no excuse most of the time, but there are two things to um, remember when it comes to mens rea, which is the mental state uh, in a criminal case. There is this concept which you're referring to of willfulness, that is um, knowing that something is illegal. Do you have to know it's against the law to be guilty of a crime? And generally the answer is no. If the police officer says, do you know how fast you were going? Don't think you're going to get away with it by saying, nope. Or do you know what the speed <laughs> limit was? Nope, no idea. Like that's no good. Um, it's it's not good enough uh, to not know. So there are a few exceptions to that. Um, and they're very complicated cases because it's where it may be that uh, it, it's so complicated that it's difficult for people to be on notice as to what the law uh, requires. So like tax cases, securities violations, campaign finance law, export violations, some of those actually require, in addition to knowing what you were doing, that you knew what you were doing was illegal. But you're right that that's very rare. And in some of the crimes that we're talking about with Donald Trump, they are not that kind of willfulness case. But it's still necessary to show the kind of mens rea required for a particular crime. So some crimes may be proved simply by showing um, recklessness, like manslaughter, 
Some require um, deliberation and premeditation, like first-degree murder. But some of the crimes we're looking at with Donald Trump are fraud crimes. So, you know, uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. You'd have to prove that he knew he was engaging in fraud, that he knew what he was saying was a lie, that when he said, I won the election and we need to do everything we can to ensure that result, that he knew that that was a lie. So that's the intent that they're seeking to prove there. So two different things, willfulness and then whatever is the mens rea that applies to that particular crime. Our last question comes to us from Lois in Michigan. And Lois asks, where do the state bar associations get their power and why does it seem as though they have so little of it? Why have they been so slow to reprimand and give consequences to those in their profession? Kim, what do you say about Hmm. that? Yeah, well, hi, Lois, uh, from a fellow Michigander. Thanks for that really good question. So I want to start out because I think there is some confusion uh, among people outside the legal profession, which is really understandable, between bar associations and state licensing authorities that govern lawyers. So bar associations like the American Bar Association or state bar associations, I will use the Massachusetts Bar Association. Those are nonprofits. Those are not government entities. They're trade associations, which lawyers can choose to be members of. Our own Jill Weinbanks was a former head of the ABA for a period of time. They're important associations. They do continuing legal education. They provide a lot of uh, resources to attorneys. But they are not uh, government entities and they have no uh, authority at all to discipline people. What you're talking about are licensing boards. So when I was a practicing attorney in Massachusetts, that was the Board of Bar Overseers of Massachusetts. That's what I had to, um, when I took the bar exam, that's the organization that accepted me and licensed me as as an attorney. And that's the organization that could... um, uh, discipline me if I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So you're right. It's not easy to get disciplined by bar associations because they were set up really to guard against things like uh, malfeasance that hurts your clients. So for example, um, if you are convicted of a major crime, you can lose your law license because you can't be trusted if you're uh, a felon to go before the court as an officer of the court and do what you need to do. Um, the fastest way to get disciplined by a, a licensing board is to steal your client's money, honestly. Doing that is probably the most common way that you get disbarred. But these organizations, these licensing uh, authorities, were not set up to deal with things like trying to help overturn an election. So when you look at the rules that lead to disciplinary action or ultimately disbarment, they are just not geared to that because it was something that they didn't foresee. That It was more about mishandling money, intermingling the money of the firm with the money from a settlement or things like that. So that's why they may seem slow to respond. But it's important to note that there have been actions by licensing authorities against people like Rudy Giuliani, whose license was suspended, against people like Sidney Powell. So they, they are getting to it, but the reason it hasn't been as quick as maybe you'd like to see is because they just didn't envision that when they set up the rules. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, hoodie, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, 
Real Paper, HelloFresh, Aura, and Cameron Hughes Wine. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. I am actually convinced that my phone talks to Greg's phone. Oh, yeah. My phone, um, our, our, uh, we have the same kind of earphones. We have, what are they, Powerbeats Pro? Yeah. And they, they pick up each other's. Like like our calls get interrupted. Like one of us will be on a call. Oh, that's And then the other, and they'll start hearing like his music. It's like, damn it, I was on a call. Oh my gosh. <laughs> because we don't, we're not on the same plan or anything, but we both have iPhones. And, you know, if if one of us logs into Wi-Fi, it tells the, it's like, oh, do you want me to log in? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, we get that all the time. And I'm like, what? who, you know, or my favorite thing was uh, I had um, a dinner in my calendar a friend, at a friend's house. And of course, you're not going to be the first one to show up. It's like a cocktail party. I didn't want to be the first one to show up. So my phone kept reminding me, oh, you, it takes f- 42 minutes to get to Alex's house. Do you want to leave? Yeah. So Start and nagging it, it you. was being you sure you don't want to leave. Yes, it was totally <laughs> nagging me. And then when I hadn't left yet, it suggested text Greg, I'm running late. Wow. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, first of all, how do you know Greg is invited? He was. <laughs> but how do you know he's invited? And why do I need to text him that I'm running That's late? So like funny. maybe I'm not running late. That's so funny. My phone is pushy. <laughs>